Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Let me start by complimenting you all. The feedback from homecoming weekend has been, across the board, very, very good. And that's because you all brought food and did the cleanup and made sure that our guests felt welcome. And so I'm really very, very proud of you all for going above and beyond to make sure that uh, the folks who came from all over the country and indeed all over the world, that they felt welcome here and that they were happy to be at GCA in little Smyrna, Tennessee. It amazes me time and time again that people plan their trips so that they can be here with us. It's really remarkable. It's really incredible. That's it for opening remarks. I know you're all surprised. I didn't say that was it for the introduction, but that was it for opening remarks. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay, here comes the aforementioned introduction. When we look at the Old Testament, we are introduced to a concept that Paul's going to pick up here in chapter 5, the idea of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is not only a feast that we find in the Old Testament, but the idea of tabernacling is something that God was very clear to teach the Israelites. Now, what a tabernacle is, according to the Old Testament, is a temporary dwelling place. Not some place that you're going to live forever, just some place you're going to live short term. And so in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would spend eight days away from their house, sometimes out in the country, sometimes up on the roof, and they would live in a temporary dwelling place. And that was all part and parcel of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not until Jesus came along and until we find the theology of the New Testament that we understand what the tabernacling was all about. Because the New Testament writers then pick that up thematically and say that we, living here and now, are living in a temporary dwelling. We're living in a tabernacle. And Paul is about to say that exact thing. What makes up Luan is not the outer person of Luan. Paul's going to refer to it as after the flesh and say, no, nobody after the flesh. You have to get to know the inner person because the flesh is going to die. The flesh is going to decay. The flesh is going to get sick. The the flesh is ultimately going to be planted. But the person lives on. And so hopefully one day we will see each other around the throne. And we're going to get new bodies. Paul talked about that. We're going to read that this morning back in 1 Corinthians. I saw you, Marilyn. I said, we're going to get new bodies. And Marilyn went, yeah. (laughs) The enthusiasm with which she did it was the best part. So the real person, the real human is not the flesh and blood body. That's just our tabernacle, our dwelling place that we're going to live in for a little while 
but then we move out. And the body goes into the ground, but we return to our maker. We go back to Christ. So Paul is going to talk about that this morning in encouraging the Corinthians not only to proper behavior and a proper doctrine and faith, he is now going to use this idea of temporary dwelling and that we're going to end up before Christ and then that we're all going to be rewarded by Christ for the things that we did here in the flesh. And knowing that, he's going to say, knowing that, live and act like that's where you're headed. It's real easy to get too tied down to this world. It's real easy to think that this stuff that's going to burn is what's really important. But it's not. What's really important is you're going to leave this planet. So far, everybody who's ever been on this planet is going to leave this planet. So far, everybody has left, and you're going to leave too. That's just a fact. Even if you think you're the immortal one, even if you think you're the one that's not going to die, you are also going to eventually join all the other people who hit the dirt. That's you. Well, that's your body. But the you that is really you is going to go and meet Christ. Paul's going to say, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We had a conversation the other night, and we were talking about uh, the ideas of the intermediate state and soul sleep. And I said, but the Bible's very clear that when you die, you leave your body, and then Paul says a couple of times, then you're present with the Lord. There's no such thing as soul sleep. You're not laying in your grave napping for a while and then getting up later. You could be napping for hundreds of years. I hope you get up rested. (laughs) So the idea that Paul is going to put together, the big picture of what Paul is going to put together is we're human beings who are trapped in these bodies, but that we have a permanent building waiting for us in heaven. And Paul's going to contrast two different Greek words. The common word for house, dwelling, actually it's the word for hut, a temporary dwelling, and that's how he refers to our bodies. But then he uses a different word to say, but we have this building in heaven that God has prepared for us the new body, the better body, the superior everlasting body. And that we long to be clothed by that body, which is why Marilyn went, yes, when we talked about the new body. Because we long to be clothed by that body. Because as long as we're in this body, it's just all kinds of trouble and sickness and tiredness. And and we're just absolutely ruled by our desires. How long can you go without eating before you start thinking, I got to eat. I got to eat right away. If you go an afternoon without eating, you'll use words like starve. (laughs) I'm starving. You're not actually starving. You're just really hungry. There are people on the planet who are starving. You're just really hungry. But you're ruled by that appetite. Whatever I'm doing right now, i got to stop and do that because i got to feed this body. i got to take care of this body. i got to wash this body. got to try to make this body presentable. Think about it for just a moment. If you don't take care of this body, does this body get better? No. If you don't take care of this body, this body gets smelly on you. 
This body gets hungry. This body gets sick. This body is decaying. This body is winding down. And one day, you're going to be clothed upon by a building that God is going to give you a new body. So now knowing that about yourselves, what kind of people ought you be? Paul's going to say, we should be people who are, who are not afraid, people who are bold, people who know what the future holds for us. And based on the fact that we know that about ourselves and our future, we're not afraid of this world. Well, that's chapter five. <clears throat> so now we can go home. Let's start at chapter 5, verse 1. For, see, we can't start there. Right away, we got the word for. Well, we got to know what, what he's concluding. Just go back a couple of verses. Verse 17. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So all of that bodily stuff, all that human stuff, all of that resistance that Paul got from the world, that we get from the world, all of that he brought under the heading of this light affliction. And I don't always think of it as light. I have a time. <laughs> Karen went, no. But for a moment. And it's just Momentary. How can he say that? Because from the eternal perspective, if you're thinking from God's perspective where a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, you're three score and ten down here, even if it's full of trouble and torment and trials the way the Bible says it's going to be, compare that to eternity and God's glory, you're going to look back on what you did on earth and say, okay, that was momentary. That was a light affliction. But now I've got the great weight of glory that God has given me for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal. Do you know that word temporal? Yeah, just earthly. They just last for a little while and then they're gone. We know that Peter says that everything that's on this planet, everything that's physical, everything that's temporal on this planet is ultimately going to burn up. So that's not the stuff that's lasting. The things that are lasting are the things that are unseen. Paul says, but the things that are not seen are eternal. I have for many, many years now, wished that I could just see something eternal. I think that somehow my faith would be stronger, and I think that I would be more confident and more bold if I could just see something. God, just show me something. I don't think it's wrong to ask that. Moses asked that. God said, you couldn't stand it. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and put my hand over you and I'll make all my glory pass by you. I will say my own name and then you'll come out and see the last parts of my glory passing by. So it's okay to ask that. I, I just wish that I could see the invisible things. I wish that I could see something of the eternal and then I wouldn't feel so earthbound. 
So Paul says those things, the eternal things, the non-temporal things, are the things which are not seen. Those are the invisible things. So how are you going to confidently look forward to the invisible things that you've never seen? I've never seen Jesus. You ever seen Jesus? How are we going to know for sure that he's going to come back and get us? There's a throne in heaven. God's on the throne. We know that uh, the description in the Old Testament from Ezekiel is that he has an emerald rainbow behind his throne. I've never seen that. Wheel within wheels and eyes within the wheels. Oh, I've never seen that. I'd probably be too scared if I did. But that's the way that God is described. In my whole life, I've never gotten to see that glory. So Paul is now going to address how we know. So he says, chapter 5, verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, as I said earlier, that's skenos, that's the common word in the New Testament for a tabernacle. It's the common word for hut. It's a temporary dwelling. For we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, which is our temporary dwelling, our house. If that gets torn down, we have a building, oikodome, which is a permanent building. It's actually the Greek verb for build something, construct something. And so Paul yanked that word out to say God is constructing for us a permanent building which he contrasts with this temporal hut that we live in, this tabernacle that we're in short term. If our house is torn down, we have a permanent building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, if this, and in the NASB, the translators add the word house, just for clarification. For indeed, in this house, we groan. I would like to testify that this is true. <laughs> that in this temporary dwelling, I do a lot of groaning. The Bible says a lot of true things. <laughs> Doesn't it just? <laughs> and I groan a whole lot more than I used to groan. I groan now if I bend over to pick something up. I just, uh, I realized that I was doing that the other day. I reached down to pick something up and heard myself go, oh, oh no, there I go. I'm groaning again. Because this earthly tent's difficult to live in. This earthly tent gets old, gets sick, gets sore. Rheumatism and arthritis kicks in and problems kick Just all the medical problems of this body cause us to groan, to cry out to God. For indeed, in this house we groan. For what reason? Because we are longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Amen. There was a bunch of yas in the room right now. Everybody who's sick and tired of this body is thinking, I just, I so look forward to that building, that dwelling that God has made for me permanently, which he describes as no more sickness, no more death, and God will wipe away every tear. That sounds good. Let's do that. Let's do that. I'm ready to sign up. Where's that line? <laughs> 
I'm standing in that line. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we have put it on, then we shall not be found naked. In other words, when we leave this house, God has prepared another house, another dwelling for us, so that we're not going to be disembodied spirits. We are going to be clothed upon by God's prepared body for us. Does any of this not sound wonderful so far? Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. That's excellent writing. And I want you to understand and grasp and feel every word of what Paul is saying. This is after the multiple beatings, after the stonings, after all the sicknesses, after being shipwrecked, after being imprisoned, after being in hungers often. He's groaning. Which is why in a minute he's going to say, to depart from here and be with the Lord, that's what I'm looking for. Because this life held no permanent joy for Paul. But the phrase, we wish not to be unclothed, we're not hoping to leave this body so that we are disembodied spirits. We're hoping to leave this body so that we can take up residence in the body that God has prepared for us. So that... This mortal, this dying, this sickly, this decaying, so that this body is going to be swallowed up by everlasting life. And that sounds like Paul saying that there's the change coming for those of us who are still alive and remain. When Jesus comes back, he uses that word and says, and this mortal will put on immortality. This decaying is going to put on everlasting life in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of a trumpet. That's really what I'm signing up for. If I end up having to go to the grave and then burst up out of my grave again, okay, I'll do that. I'd like to think that when I burst up out of my grave, I'll have the presence of mind to go, ta-da. You won't be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) But... I'm really looking forward to that instantaneous change where this corruptible puts on incorruptibility, where this mortal puts on immortality. And then we're gathered with the saints that have come up out of their grave to meet the Lord in the air and to put on the permanent dwelling that God has prepared for us. That sounds like a really good day. And I'm ready for it any time. Now is good. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, how do we know that that's going to happen? Because just like Gladys said a moment ago, you're not going to be in charge. Paul's next phrase, verse 5, is, This is going to happen because you're not in charge of it. 
because this is what God prepared. Look at verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. This is God's intention. This is God's plan for you. The one who has always loved you, the one who knew you before the foundation of the world, the one who called you to himself, the one who wrote your names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, has very purposefully designed a plan for your life that includes when you leave this planet and leave this mortal body, you are going to have a permanent building of everlasting life that God has prepared for you because that was his very purpose. There should be an amen right about there. Amen. Amen. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a pledge. We've seen Paul say this over and over again. He has given you the Holy Spirit. How do you know? We haven't seen the invisible things yet. The invisible things are the everlasting things, the heavenly things. I haven't seen any of those things yet. That's why I emphasized I haven't seen those. I, I would like to see them, but I haven't seen them yet. And yet I believe in them. I am convinced by them. Why? Because God has placed in my heart, in my being, he has placed his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee that the whole rest of it is true. And you know what I have seen, even though I haven't seen the wheel within wheels and the eyes, and even though I haven't seen a seven-eyed lamb that looks over the whole earth, even though I haven't seen the crystal throne and the crystal sea and the emeralds and the rainbow, even so, all these images in the Bible, even though I haven't seen those, I have seen the activity, the work, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it in your lives. Because I know some of you, Kellen. Because I know some of Because <laughs> I know some of you. I know where you've been. I know what you've done. And I know what God has brought you from. I know how he has delivered you. And I know that what you were then and what you are now is not your doing. Because I know you're not capable of doing it. How do I know that? Because I know people who are who used to be in the same situations that you used to be in, who are still in them. And yet you've walked away from that. Yet you've changed. Yet you've been redeemed. Yet you have, I was going to say, yet you have decided, but it's not really you deciding. It's the spirit of God within you has decided that your life was going to be different, that your life was going to be devoted to heavenly things rather than earthly things. And you have a new confidence and you have a new faith that simply did not generate from you, from your decision-making, from your will, from your sense of ego and pride. There's this sense of humility and this sense of God is all and my whole life now is wrapped up in whatever God wants from me. Okay, that's proof positive that the Spirit has gotten a hold of you. And if the Spirit has gotten a hold of you, Paul says, that's the down payment from God that is the pledge from God that all the rest of it that he has promised you is also true. That's how you know. So when you read the stuff that's too glorious, when you read the stuff that Paul says has no comparison, 
when you read this stuff that you can't begin to comprehend? I got a t-shirt the other day from our Australian friend that says, I want to know what the thunder said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to know what the thunder said. Because God has not revealed everything yet. God has decided that he... He's under no compunction to tell us absolutely everything. He's holding back some stuff. There's glorious future ahead for us. He just hasn't revealed it all to us yet. He hasn't shown us all of it yet, but he has given us the down payment. Have you ever bought a house? Has anybody in here ever bought a house? One thing that you do when you buy the house is that you give them earnest money. You give them a down payment. And what you mean by the earnest money is, I mean it when I say I'm going to buy the house. So I'm going to write you a check right now, not for the whole amount of the house. I'm going to write you a check for a part of the price of the house just to show you I'm serious about acquiring the whole house. That's the word Paul used. That the Holy Spirit of God is given to his people as a pledge, as a down payment, as a guarantee that he is going to purchase the whole thing for us. And he's given us the pledge ahead of time so that we know the whole rest is true. He can't back out. He can't back out. He's put the down payment down. That's a contract. That's going to happen. So very, very frequently, I am asked by folks, well, you know, that Christian thing seems a little uh, out there, seems a little extreme, seems a little imaginary. It's probably some kind of crutch that people with psychological problems like you need but I'm well and I'm fine and I, I don't need the crutch of Christianity because I've read the Bible. Usually the cynics try to claim they've read the Bible when we know that <laughs> had they, there's probably not much chance that they understood what they were reading. But they'll say, well, I've read the Bible and I've looked at it and so much of what's said in there is imaginary. When was the last time you ever saw a miracle? When did you ever see a blind person get their eyes back or a lame person walking? When were you ever raising the dead? When are you? So that's the cynicism of the world saying over and over, how can you possibly know that the things in this Bible are true? Paul's answer is very, very clear. You have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by his work in you, the change in you, the redirecting of your life, the change of mind, the change of heart, makes the Holy Spirit in your life very obvious. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the down payment, the pledge from God, and that proves that all the rest of it is true. I've never seen anybody raised from the dead, but I believe it happened and can happen. And sovereign God can do that if he pleases to do that, even though I've never seen it. Here, I'll give you a big one. I'll give you a real obvious example. I've never seen Jesus riding on the clouds, cracking the blue of the sky, and coming back to planet Earth. I've never seen that. Anybody in this room ever seen it? No. No. Nobody's ever seen it. Do you believe it? Yes. Why? You've never seen it. It's never happened in your life or your grandparents' life or your great-grandparents' life. It's never happened in 2,000 years. It's never happened. But we believe it. Why? That seems almost insane. Other things he said we've seen are true, so we can trust him for the things we haven't seen. Because you've got that down payment. Because 
because the other things that he has said have proven true in your life. The Bible is sometimes axiomatically true. You don't have to prove it. It proves itself. And the Bible says that if the Spirit of God gets, in, gets a hold of you, it's going to give you the gift of faith and repentance. And you've gone through the process of repenting, and you've come to faith. That's now axiomatically true. The Bible just proved itself. So God, who is in charge, who is sovereign, who is enterprise, oh dear, who is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, when you listen to that later on the internet, you won't hear that stumble. That won't <laughs> exist. I'll fix that who's in the enterprise of glorifying himself, that very God who's in charge of absolutely everything, make sure that all those people that he has chosen, that he has written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those are the very people he has given his Holy Spirit to. Those people have been changed. Those people have been brought to faith and repentance. And as a consequence, those people will be glorified with the new body that God has prepared for them, the permanent building of everlasting life. And all of that is true based on the fact that you're already in the process he has already begun the process with you and if God begins something he always finishes it so that means you can be confident that when you leave this mortal body you're going to see God get your permanent dwelling place and live eternally in his glory and all those things that you wanted to see you're finally going to see So here's what Paul says about that. Therefore, verse 6, we had to get all that settled so that we can understand the therefore. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. And then verse 7 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Is it worth pointing out that whole denominations of word of faith folks and Pentecostal folks love to pull verse 7 from its natural context and then say, I get whatever I say because I walk by faith, not by sight. And so if I've got a cold, I say I don't have a cold because that's my faith, not my sight. And They've completely misused the verse, which has a context. The point that Paul is making is we have the Holy Spirit of God, even though we have not seen the heavenly things yet. But we walk by the faith that the Spirit has given us. We're walking out our lives in boldness and confidence, believing in the things we haven't seen yet. So we walk by faith, not by sight. We're not walking around saying, heaven's real because I've been there. Heaven's real because I've seen it. I went there last weekend for a couple of hours, said hi to everybody and split. It's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that even in his situation where he has seen the Lord face to face, he still has not seen the glory, the surpassing glory that lies ahead. And since he has not seen it, he walks in faith. He walks in confidence that everything else God has said is true will indeed be true. So he says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer rather to be absent from this body and to be home with the Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. And there it is. I'm glad I've got one person who's with me. Tom, look up Philippians 1.23. Because this is something that Paul says quite a bit. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He writes it to several different churches. He does not know the idea of intermediate state or soul sleep or, or waiting. God does not leave his people, to use Pauline language, he doesn't leave us naked. He doesn't leave us unclothed. When we leave this body that we are clothed upon, then he's going to give us another body that he is preparing for us, a permanent building so that we are clothed and never naked. So here's what Tom says. Philippians 1.23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So I long to depart the body and be with the Lord, not depart the body and lay in the grave or wander around like a ghostly image and haunt people. None of that. I long to depart the body and be with the Lord. So we walk by faith, not by sight. And as a consequence, we're of good courage, good boldness. And we prefer rather to be absent from this body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, now that we've established all that, now that we know all that, therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether it's at home in this body or whether it's absent from this body, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. Our ambition is not to satisfy ourselves. Our ambition is not ultimately to make the world sit up and take notice, get the world to go, look at that guy. He really, that's great. No, the ambition, whether in the body prior to death or whether out of the body after death, our ambition is always that he's the one who gets all the praise and all the glory and that we are pleasing to him. I know that I say it in pretty much every prayer I ever pray. Those of you who have been around me when I've prayed, you've heard me say, and I pray that the things we're doing are pleasing in your sight. Because that's our goal. That's our ambition. Whatever it is, whatever our hands find to do, we just pray that it's pleasing in God's sight. And even if that doesn't please people, even if human beings can't understand the things we're doing, nor see the value in the things we're doing, we're doing them because we're seeking to please God. And that includes sometimes the positive doing of stuff and sometimes the negative not doing of stuff. Because our goal is that God be pleased. Not so that he will save us on the basis of the things we have done and not done that have pleased him to the degree that he is obligated to save us. That's not the Pauline theology. The Pauline theology is all of this is true of you. 
you are going to be clothed upon. God has prepared this place for you and prepared this uh, eternal glory for you since before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you and he's called you and he's prepared you for this very purpose. So obviously the doing of the good and the not doing of the bad is not for the purpose of salvation. But now Paul is going to say, because we all are going to appear before Christ in order to be rewarded for the things we've done in the flesh. It's our desire to do these things. It's our ambition. It is our ambition to do those things. Absolutely. Now, if you are to take the next section of chapter 5 out of context and misread it, it's real easy to get theologically confused and say, well, now Paul's talking about everybody and the judgment seat of Christ. But he's not. He's being very specific. In fact, I'm going to show you in a moment that he even uses a different word. Starting at verse 9, therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Why? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'll tell you that the words judgment seat are actually just one short Greek word, bema. It can mean a throne. It can mean a step. It's the place where Christ is going to judge the actions of his people. As we look through this, notice that Christ is not judging people and saving or condemning them. He's not doing that. What he's doing is rewarding people for the things they have done in the flesh. And Paul is going to say, knowing that, that should be the inspiration to do good things. Knowing that it pleases God and that we're going to stand before Christ one day and be judged on what we've done. Here, let's look at a different portion of 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians 3 for just a moment because we've already seen Paul talk about this. And I think that it will kind of clarify it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3, keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 5. I have no idea what I made up there. I have, I have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, start at verse 11. Well, no, start at verse 10. This is when Paul has just talked about people saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. And he said, you're carnal because you prefer one over another. He said, some of us have planted, some have watered. It's God that gives the increase. That's the context here. Starting at verse 10, according to the grace of God that was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And then another person is building upon that foundation. But let each man be careful how he builds upon that foundation. For no man can lay any other foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, I've already laid out the foundation of Christ. I've given you the basic doctrine. I've explained to you the doctrine and the teaching of Christ. And nobody gets to come along later and build some other foundation. The foundation is laid. It's done. The apostles have laid the foundation of Christianity. It's written in a book for our learning, and we're not supposed to come along and exercise our imaginations and make up some other foundation. The foundation of Jesus Christ has already been laid, but then 
in the course of men teaching and preaching, we build on that foundation. So then he says, be careful how you build on that foundation. Verse 12, now if any man builds upon that foundation with gold or silver, precious stones or wood or hay or straw, I think the King James says, or stubble, each man's work will become evident. Okay, there's that judgment thing. There's that Bema seat of Christ thing. I think it's Bema. I've been pronouncing it Bema. It could be Gobama. I don't know. It could be. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed that. Here's that Bema seat of Christ thing that Christ is going to test, going to try every man's work. And he's going to see what it's made of, if it's gold or if it's silver, if it's precious stones, or if it's wood or hay or stubble. Each man's work will be evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Now, I don't know all the details of that, but what we know is Christ is going to judge every man's works in building on that foundation, and he's going to find out what can survive the fire. Wood, hay, stubble, that stuff burns up. But if you put fire to gold, to silver, to fine jewels, they survive the fire, and in fact, it refines them. If any man's work is burned up, oh no, verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon that foundation remains... He shall receive a reward. It's the same thing he's talking about in 2 Corinthians. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. In other words, he's not going to achieve the same rewards, but he himself will be saved. So now we know we're talking about saved people. He himself is going to be saved yet as through fire. So everybody among the Christian community is going to be judged based on not their salvation or damnation, but on how they have built on the foundation of Christ, whether they have built doctrinally, biblically, whether they have built gold and silver and precious jewels on that foundation, or whether they have built things that can be burned up and blown away, debris. And there's a whole lot of people adding debris these days. So Paul warns, you have to be careful to build carefully on that foundation, not rebuild the foundation. It's already built because Christ is going to judge every man's building on the foundation. Now, I have argued before, and I think it's a defensible argument, that in this context, Paul is talking about disciples or teachers, preachers, pastors, those that actually do build on the foundation. So it seems to be a limited group within this context. When you get to 2 Corinthians, go back there, now Paul is saying everybody, all the Christians, are going to appear before the Bema seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the Judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's what Paul's been talking about, the body, the time we spend in the body, this temporary dwelling, this tabernacle. What are we going to do with our time in this tabernacle? How are we going to spend our time in this tabernacle? 
Well, it matters what we do and how we spend our time in this tabernacle because Christ is going to judge and recompense everyone for how they lived their lives in this tabernacle. For we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I'm going to say it again. We're not talking about judgment to salvation or condemnation. The total group he's talking about here is saved people who have the Holy Spirit of God. They all have the down payment of God. But then Christ is going to recompense people based on how they lived out their Christian life. Let's see if I can make it more brass tacks. I have known people, and you probably have too, who you can have some confidence in, in their Christian confession. And yet you'll see them occasionally do things that you go, not sure. That was the look, by the way. I saw that. (laughs) That was the look, yeah. Karen kind of went, yeah. And you kind of think, gee, I don't know that a Christian ought to be doing that. Okay, well, I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. He's talking to the Corinthian church, remember. He's talking to the people who he has said are eating and drinking damnation to themselves, judgment to themselves, temporal judgments. He's talking to people who have preferred one over another and don't wait on each other. He's talking to people who have been engaged in idol worship. So he's encouraging them toward the Christian life by saying, the way you live now, Now that you are converted by the Holy Spirit, now that you understand the things of Christ, now that you are part of that foundation that I've laid, now be careful how you live in this tent, in this body, because the way you live and the things you do are going to be tried by Christ himself. So what kind of behavior would that inspire? If you know that you're going to one day stand before the glory of Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And that he's going to judge what you did in your life, I think especially since he revealed himself to you. How are you going to measure up? Are you going to get rewarded? Or are you going to suffer loss? Even though you'll be saved, I know some folks who think, well, even if I can just get in by a toenail, you know, as long as I'm in, I'm in. Remember the old spiritual, the old song that used to say, if you get to heaven before I do, drill a hole in the wall and pull me through? Yeah. Yeah. And there are some people who think, if I can just make it, just barely make it, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about living a fully orbed, robust Christian life. Where you're living, he said specifically, whether in this body or out of this body, you're living to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I keep stressing, I keep saying, this is not the salvation damnation thing. The salvation part is wrapped up in Christ. The salvation part is an accomplished fact. The salvation part has been accomplished 2,000 years ago on Calvary. 
Christ paid the price, fully redeemed all his people. So we're not talking about judgment to salvation or damnation. In fact, there is no judgment of salvation and damnation. What I mean by that is there's no point where God is going to go down the litany of every human who ever lived and say, saved, condemned, saved, condemned. We are saved in Christ So what about all those that are not saved in Christ? Well, we find out about them in Revelation 20. So let's go look at that. Over to Revelation 20. After talking about the kingdom on Wednesday night and waxing all eschatological on you, you had to kind of guess that I was going to end up back in Revelation 20 somehow. Let's start at verse... 10, just because I like it. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a good place for an amen. Amen. That's a decent amen right there. Starting at verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Okay, let's think for just a moment. Is the church there at the great white throne judgment? The church has already been redeemed. The church has already gone through the instantaneous change or being brought up out of their graves. The church back in chapter 19 has already been to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is not about the church. This is about the unsaved. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, which I find a very interesting phrase that implies that everything that people are doing on planet earth is being recorded in heaven. And that one day those records are going to be opened again. And that everyone is going to have to listen to God judge them on the basis of what's written in the books. So I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, plural, not the book of life. There's another book, the book of life. And then there's the books of the recording of everything that these people had done, and they're judged out of that. They're not judged out of the book of life. The people who are in the book of life don't get judged here. Here, I'll show you. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Which, by the way, when we die, do we go to Hades? No. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You can see the contrast here. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, According to their deeds. Are we ever judged based on our deeds? No. We've already been judged according to our deeds. Christ has already become sufficient sacrifice to pay for our deeds. That judgment happened at Golgotha 2,000 years ago. 
That judgment is finished. That redemption price is paid. Christ rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God today, proving that that sacrifice was fully and sufficiently our salvation and that God accepted it on our behalf. So are we going to be judged based on our deeds? No, not where salvation and condemnation are concerned. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, which we just saw that the devil and his angels were thrown into. Look at verse 15. I don't think there's just an amen coming up. (laughs) And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. Are our names written in the book of life? Then we don't have to worry about this judgment. This is the white throne judgment where God is judging all those who deserve condemnation and judgment. But what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians, the Bama seat of Christ is a reward for Christians for the things they have accomplished in their body, whether good or bad, they're going to be rewarded or suffer loss, but they themselves are already saved. So don't confuse the two. That's why we've gone through this exercise. Far too often people seem to think that those two events are one and the same event, and they're simply not. You look at the details, it's just not the same. It's two different things. Back to 2 Corinthians. We're nearly done. Sort of, kind of. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, here's another therefore, now that we've established all that. Now that we've got all those facts and doctrines in a row, therefore, knowing the fear of God. Okay, so who is he talking to? He's talking to people who know the fear of God. The word fear there is not like slavish fear. It's not like, oh, no, I'm afraid of God. It means the reverence. It means knowing that if you saw the real God, you'd fall down on your face and say like Isaiah, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You would do that immediately because you would recognize that he's, well, majestic and glorious and God, and that you're a worm, and that you're only dust, and that you have nothing to recommend yourself. Knowing that, knowing the fear, the reverence of the Lord, Paul says, that's why we persuade men. He knows the judgment's coming, and he goes out and preaches the gospel to everyone who will listen as he seeks to persuade men toward Christ. We persuade men, but we are made obvious. The word is in the English is manifest. It means that we're laid open before God, but we are manifest to God, and I hope that we're manifest also in your consciences. I think he's saying, God knows me. God knows my purpose. God knows why I'm doing this. 
God knows why I've written these letters. God knows why I've worn myself out on all these missionary journeys. He knows why I'm doing all this. It's because I want to be pleasing in his sight, and I am laid wide open before God, and I hope that I am equally laid open in your mind, in your conscience, so that you can recognize that I'm doing this to please God. Not to please you, but I'm doing this because I am a servant of the God who has chosen me. So I hope to be made manifest in your conscience. So now we are not again commending ourselves. Paul realizes that here he is talking about himself again and promoting him. Himself, And so he says, we're not talking again to commend ourselves to you, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us, or in other words, to boast in us, that you may have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. We know those folks, don't we? We know the folks who think that Christianity or religion is all in appearance. As long as you put on a a good religious show, as long as you have a good religious program, as long as you look like you're living a holy life, as long as whenever you say the word God, you say it with a soft O. God. As long as you seem holier than everybody else, as long as you appear to be more righteous than your fellows, as long as you can point at everybody else and say, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, I'm fortunate I'm not like that. Those are people who put on the appearance of religiosity. And we know those folks. But Paul's going to argue, don't know any man after the flesh. Know people after that inner man, after their love of Christ, after their devotion via the Holy Spirit. That's how we know each other. That's how we are related to each other. There are people in the room right now who I have absolutely nothing in common with. Nothing. If we sat down and said, let's think of something to do, the closest we could come is, let's have lunch. Because we got like nothing in common. And we love each other. And we'd give ourselves for each other. Why? Because we know each other not after the outer man, but after the inner man. And so Paul is going to argue, starting at verse 12, that he's not commending himself again But he's giving the Corinthians an opportunity to boast in him so that they'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So when they encounter those people who put on the appearance and the arrogance, I would say, and they wear that robe of me first, he says, I'm providing you an answer. That's what I'm doing for you. You can know that what I'm telling you is true And you can provide an answer to those people because you can say the teaching that we received from Paul, who got it directly from Christ, is different than what you're presenting to me. Verse 13, for if we are crazy, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Because obviously there were some folks telling the Corinthian church, why are you listening to that Paul guy? He's nuts. He's crazy. Why would you listen to that? And to this very day, it's not very difficult to tune into some portion of the Internet where there are people saying that Christians are crazy. Like I said earlier, you need that crutch of Christianity because you're mentally deficient. If you were intelligent, 
if you were smart if you really knew stuff you wouldn't need that Christian thing you'd be like me because I'm fully sufficient okay well there they are putting on the air and they don't have the change of heart that it takes to understand the things of Christ for if we are crazy it is for God but if we are of sound mind, if what we're saying makes sense to you, if what we're saying doctrinally is provable out of the Bible, if what we're saying is consistent with what God has said down through the ages, if our doctrine and teaching makes sense and is sound and whole, it's the same word that he uses when he talks about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, whole doctrine. If we're of a sound mind, well, it's for you. We're demonstrating it, we're bringing it forward, we're teaching it, we're saying it for your sake because you need to be taught. For if the love of Christ controls us, compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. That's really where I want to start next week because we're going to have to talk about the way that Paul uses the word posir and the alls and we're going to have to talk about the universalist reading of that passage. But here's what I want to say last. The very beginning of verse 14 says, for the love of Christ constrains us. And that is the very basis on which I operate. That's why I don't tell you how short the skirts can be for you women and that men have to wear ties which means so far Steve gets in this morning and I don't even have a tie on what was the phrase you brought up the other day you heard me uh, I don't drink I don't chew I don't go with girls that do she wanted to know what that meant in Australian yeah I mean the people who are constantly keeping control of your behavior and judging your behavior, the hypocrites who make themselves better than you and are constantly calling you down. So I, I have never come to any of your houses, and I think I can say this confidently, I've never walked into any of your houses and said that you've got to clean up your act, that I don't like this or that about what you're doing, or that you've got to dress a certain way or marry a certain person, or that you've got to behave yourself a certain way, because I know for a fact, because I've been through it, because I've been in a very legalistic church, as Tom has, I know that no matter how much the church thunders down on you with rules and regulations, you can do it when you're around the other people, and you can put on the air, and you can look like you're a good person, but those people don't know the secrets of your heart. Those people don't know the depravity of your mind, the wickedness of your thoughts. Those people don't know it, so you can put on the outer man, and you can walk around looking like the outer man's pretty darn good. But I know that human beings can't clean up your act. Even though they try all the time, do this, don't do that, do three of these, genuflect, genuflect, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. They're just all the time telling you what it is you've got to do to make yourself more godly, more holy, more righteous. The reason I don't do that is, one, I can't because I don't have time to keep up with all of you. And I don't want to monitor your behavior. And let's be honest, I don't want to know what you do in the dark. But number two, Christ constrains you. The Holy Spirit of God is inside you. How many times have you heard me use the phrase, the Holy Spirit of God is a governor on your behavior? There are places you used to go, things you used to do, actions you used to take that you can't take anymore. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. Not that you asked. 
Now, this is a story about my brother. I've told you before that years and years ago when I lived in Los Angeles, when I was rock and roll boy, my brother said to me one time, has it ever occurred to you that nobody likes you? And I replied, you got to be crazy. Everybody likes me. You know, I go into an arena of 30,000 people. I'm the loudest, well-lit person in the room. I mean, everybody digs me. They pay to be there, and I get paid. So everybody likes me. And he said to me, if you're at LAX, that's the airport in Los Angeles. He said, you're at LAX at 3 in the morning. Who are you going to call that doesn't work for you? I was stumped. I couldn't think of anybody that liked me that much. Nobody I could call in the middle of the night and say, come help me. No one. So a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my brother. And I was talking about the fact that Ron, our friend, our friend of how many years? Well, since 82. That's when we first met him. I, I would say that's about right. So Ron was over at my house. We played some music. It's on my blog site right now. This world is not my home. Me and Tom and Ron playing music together. So my brother's on the phone telling me how much he enjoyed hearing Ron again because he remembers Ron from back in L.A. And he said to me, you're really good at keeping friends over a long period of time. And I banged on the receiver and said, who is this? Because that was really close to a compliment. And that doesn't sound like you. So here's the point. My brother recognized Back in the 19, late 70s, early 80s, he recognized that nobody liked me. And now he's commenting on how well I keep friends over the long term and how I stay in touch with people and how people like me. My point is, I didn't do that. Left to myself, I'd still be as egocentric as I ever was. I'd still be hard to get along with. I'd still be hypercritical and very sarcastic. Okay, I'm still sarcastic. And that would be me. Left to myself, that's me. And every one of you can tell a similar story. Every one of you know what you used to be like and how far you've come. Okay, why? That's my question. Why are you like that now? Is it because some preacher somewhere thundered down from his pulpit on you and said, stop being like that. And then you went, oh, gosh, okay, yes, sir. No, you didn't stop because some other human being talked you into it. You changed, you were conformed, you have faith, you repented, and you became more God-glorifying in your life because the Holy Spirit of God, which is the down payment of everything else that he has promised you, acts as a governor on your behavior, and the love of Christ constrains you. That's why you're like this. That's why you're in church. That's why you came from Australia. I keep bringing that up because I'm fascinated by it. Because I can't think of any preacher in Australia I'm going to go fly to here. There are none. Okay, good. No, that's why we're the kind of people we are today is because the Holy Spirit of God got a hold of us. And because the Holy Spirit of God got a hold of us and made himself manifest and brought about the fruits of righteousness in our life, that is proof positive that God has made the down payment and that is proof positive that all those things that we haven't seen yet are true. And that's a good place for an amen. 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 Yeah, it's all true. 
It's why we cling to it. It's why we hope for it. As this body gets older, as this body decays, we look forward to being clothed upon by God because that is far, far better, as Paul has said over and over again. And it is permanent and it is everlasting life. And that's what we're looking forward to as Christians. We're not Christians just because it makes us groovier in society. We're not just Christians because we got a bigger car and a bigger house. We're Christians because the love of Christ constrains us. The Holy Spirit of God has produced faith and repentance in us. And we are being brought along, not by sight, but by faith. We're being brought along in this lifetime to do good works that please God so that when all those things are judged by Christ, we're not found wanting. We're found pleasing him. And that's our goal. That's our desire. And that's what God has purposed for us from the beginning. Amen. Amen. The Spirit of God is in us, and the Spirit of God doesn't die. And that's the reason when Stephen was stoned, they didn't say he died. They said he fell asleep. Fell asleep. And that's what happens to us. We don't go to Hades. Right. We fell asleep in Christ and wake up in his arms. Let me tell you one more quick thing, just because I'm reminded of it. Barney Johnson, who I dearly love, who called me last night, Sunday night and said, did I just miss homecoming? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, years ago, Barney's very peculiar mind, he preached a message up at Main Street that he called falling asleep on the gospel. And he started talking about how kids and older folk have a tendency to nod off during the sermon. And he was talking about growing up in the church as he did. And they would go to church all day. Sunday was all about church. You'd eat at church. You'd have three services. And you'd stay. You'd be there all day. And he said, as a kid, he and the other kids would crawl under the pews and go to sleep. And that he was kind of okay with that because at least they were in church under the sound of the gospel, but they would wear out. So he talked about falling asleep on the gospel. But then he turned it from little kids sleeping in church to folks reaching the end of their life and that you want to fall asleep on the gospel when you sleep, when you finally leave this world, that it would be great if the gospel was what you fell asleep on. He said, because then you're going to open your eyes and you're going to see Jesus and you'll say, hey, I was just thinking about you. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that a great phrase? I've never forgotten that phrase. I, I was just thinking about you. Wouldn't it be wonderful to stand face-to-face with Christ and be able to say, I was just thinking about you. He that believes in me shall never die. Yes, sir, we got to wrap it up here. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved it when Barney Johnson said his little granddaughter fell asleep and woke up in heaven. Yeah. Blew me away. And that's what the death of a Christian is. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little confused. Are you saying that at the point of death... We get a resurrection body at that time, or you're saying something else? I would say exactly what Paul said, which is when we die, we're present with the Lord. Okay. And there is a time coming when he's going to bring everybody up out of their grave, and the people who are alive and remain will be instantaneously made immortal, and then we're all going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. Somewhere in that process, we're going to receive bodies that are permanent buildings from God. 
Where in that process? I don't know for sure. That I can't say because Paul didn't nail it down. I would like to think it's at the point of death, but I also know, as you've brought up, that Paul talks about that resurrection of the dead coming. So maybe it's at that point. What I know is he's not going to leave us naked and wandering. We know we will receive white robes somewhere to wait for the At the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, we receive white robes, which is the righteousness of saints. I wish I could be more specific. Anybody got anything more specific? Jeff, you got something more specific? Steve, something? Tom, anyone? No. Micah? Randy Alcorn discusses that at length in his book called Heaven. And what did he conclude? His conclusion is that we will be clothed, but we'll not receive our eternal resurrection body until that resurrection occurs. Yeah. We won't be spirits. Uh, right, we're not going to be unclothed spirits. We're not going to be ghosts. We're not going to be haunting people. While, while we wait. While we wait for the final, for the final we'll perfected clothed, body. But we will not, even then, be fully clothed. Yeah. I agree with that because... Paul doesn't give us an exact timeline there. He just tells us what to expect. So I expect because Paul said to expect it, but I don't know what the timing is. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.